The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore. That's the name of a new book that has just come out, written by my guest, uh, Rachel Brownell. And it is, uh, the, the subtitle is Getting Through the First Year of Sobriety. Why are we talking about mommies who don't drink here anymore? Because of this haunting, unfortunate, tragic accident that occurred, uh, recently where a woman named Diane Schuler drove drunk and high on marijuana on the Taconic Parkway, which is in New York State, near New York City. I've driven that parkway many times myself. It is kind of a windy road. It is not a good road to be driving on the wrong way, which is what she did, going uh, onto the freeway through an exit ramp because she was drunk out of her mind, twice the legal limit, and high on pot. It's bad enough that she killed herself and her two-year-old daughter, Erin, but she also killed her three nieces, who she was driving in the car, and she gave a severe brain injury to her five-year-old son, who is the only survivor of the accident, and she also killed three men from Yonkers who were driving in another car, going the right way, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, however, on the parkway. And what is just so haunting to me, I mean, not only just the, the breadth of this tragedy, but also the fact that, A, it could have been prevented, and B, her husband, um, who has lawyered up pretty much immediately after the accident and wouldn't talk to authorities, the police and so on, after the accident, um, but instead hid behind a lawyer because, of course, he was worried about criminal charges, which as of today have apparently uh, been dropped or aren't going to be filed in the first place, really. And he's still concerned about a civil suit brought about by um, primarily the three men from Yonkers, their families, and perhaps uh, the brother of his deceased wife, whose three nieces were killed in the accident. And um, he's also concerned, rightly so, about Child Protective Services uh, taking away his five-year-old child because of child endangerment, perhaps. And the whole question hinges upon whether or not he had any idea that his wife, Diane, had a drinking problem. Now, it is possible, as my guest uh, will attest to, that people, well, we all know that people can can hide their drinking, and as my guest will talk about, uh, it is especially frequent that women 
hide their drinking, and it is especially true that society doesn't want to think that mommies um, would be alcoholics. But at the same time, uh, obviously this man is hiding something. And um, if she was an alcoholic, if she, you know, did have a history, perhaps it was early on, perhaps she'd been drinking for years, um, but if he didn't know about it, then certainly that was denial because really people should know and do know at some level. And if he did know and let her drive the children back uh, from their campgrounds, they were camping that weekend, and the, the curious thing is that she drove home with the uh, five children in her car, and he drove home in his own uh, vehicle with a dog. And there are all kinds of different stories. He's changed his story so many times. First he said he did, she drove the children home because he was going to be going fishing. Then he changed the story. It, the whole thing is very fishy, and I'm going to bring my guest into this to try to help make sense out of it. Rachel, what do you, thank you for joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch. What do you think about this whole car accident situation? Well, obviously, it's a huge tragedy, and uh, I guess mostly my perspective is that there are a lot of people who are drinking and hiding it from their spouses. I'm not sure women hide it more than men, and so I think it's it's quite possible he didn't know of her drinking. Um, it's really quite possible. It's also quite possible that she, when she left the campground, the report said that the woman who ran the campground, you know, didn't smell any alcohol in her breath, and quite a few people saw her as she progressed through the day, and it seems pretty clear that she drank a lot in the car, um, maybe even after leaving the campground, so... We can speculate endlessly about, you know, whether her husband is lying or whatever, but I think the key issue here is that a lot of people in active addiction are in total denial and their families are in total denial and it can result, this is an absolute worst case scenario of what can happen. A lot of people drive under the influence and it's just through the grace of God they don't get, you know, there aren't more of these, these terrible accidents. That's yeah. my, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there have been so many inconsistencies. I'm sure you've found it frustrating, too. Uh, for example, at first her husband said that the vodka bottle that they found um, when they were investigating the car after the crash, they, of course, were, you know, doing a careful analysis of her car, and they found a broken vodka bottle that had been in the car. And, yes, she could have had that. Um, started drinking that after she left the campground. But then, so the husband first said that this vodka bottle wasn't theirs, and then he changed his story to say that uh, they bring a vodka bottle in the car, but it, they drink so little that the bottle lasts for a year, and that's why she just kept having the same bottle in the car. Um, you know, I mean, it just... Um, it, the whole thing just and, and if she if she wasn't an alcoholic let's just you know think about that and this was unusual for her that suddenly that day she had so many you know they think that it was the equivalent of 10 drinks um within the 4 hours from 9:30 in the morning when she left the campground to 1:30 uh to when the accident occurred in 4 hours she would have had the equivalent of 10 drinks and um plus at some point she found time to, to smoke marijuana. And he did say, or some family members said, I think the husband may have admitted this, that he did know that she did at times use marijuana at night to help her go to sleep. Um, 
so if let's just say she isn't or wasn't an alcoholic and that day there was something really bothering her and she just drank all these drinks i mean i know that that's kind of a little hard to imagine 10 drinks in the morning but um but in any case you know what is the husband hiding i mean was he really going to be going off to have an affair or was he was she concerned that maybe he was lying to her about where he was going and he was going to meet his mistress I, I mean, what bothers me, aside from, of course, the tragedy, especially these young children, and what's especially um, sad is how the eight-year-old niece, This, um, for people who don't know the whole story, um, Diane, the driver, stopped off for, well, stopped off first at McDonald's to buy breakfast for everyone, and then she stopped off in a, uh, like a, I guess at a gas station or a 7-Eleven type store, and she wanted to buy pain medications, um, like over-the-counter pain medications. And the clerk said that she was sober. But, of course, of course, people who are alcoholics um, can have a lot of drinks and appear sober. Um, then the husband, one of the things they tried to blame it on was Ambisol, an over-the-counter uh, medication for tooth. Pain Dr. Carroll, can I interrupt you sure, for a second? Sure. I have nothing to say at all. I am not interested in speculating at all on what she's taking or not taking or the sordid details of this crash. I think the important message here is to focus on what we can do if we have a suspicion that we have a drinking problem. I think to try and engage in all the... Um, the sort of details of the case really just is missing the point. Well, perhaps it's because one of the things that I do is that um, as a psychiatrist, I'm also a psychiatric expert witness. So all of these things um, interest me because, um, you know, I don't want the husband, yes, of course we're going to be talking about, be talking about your story and, and the things that relate and so on and, and, and women who, who this pattern of, of increasing alcohol abuse in women. But what I'm concerned about as well is um, that the truth comes out about this and um, and that the husband does not get off the hook because because I think there is something that he is trying to hide and I'm just uh, you know I, I do want to bring out some of these these um, um, uh, things that that he said at one time and took back at another time and and I think it is important. Um, well, you don't it may have be to... important, but I don't see how this relates to an interview. I mean, this doesn't seem like an interview. Well, I'm, I gonna be, I'm just. To is, I always start with a news hook for my shows. Okay. Generally, okay. I start with a news hook, and then I get into whatever the person's book or the person's expertise is, and I'm just starting off with this news hook. Okay. Um, and and okay. So um, let me just finish with this. Um, my point is that that. Um, well, I was saying about the Ambisol that, in fact, Ambisol um, produces what's called benzoyl alcohol, not the same kind of alcohol, the ethanol that people test for in um, that they tested her blood for and that they found oh, twice the legal limit. Uh, also interesting is that um, she avoided apparently doctors and dentists, which is why she waited seven weeks and hadn't gone to the dentist with her tooth abscess, which is something that is typical of alcoholics. I feel really bad for her son, Brian, five years old. I mean, thank goodness he survived, but um, he has a severe head injury, and um, he, you know, is going to be somewhat influenced to the extent that he did know what went on in the car. Of course, his father is not going to be wanting to um, wanting him to reveal anything that would 
that would help the civil case against uh, the father and, of course, that would help Child Protective Services take the child away. Um, I guess that, that these are some of the points that I wanted to make. Uh, just that I, I just feel that it's very important to, to get to the truth in all of this. I mean, certainly with alcoholism, um, part of the problem is the secrecy about it and, and the denial related to it. And I just think that we need to um, come to the bottom of this. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously it's going to be the authorities doing it, but I just don't want everything to be swept under the rug. And, um, and I think that that brings us to your book and what you uh, were, I know part of it has to do with these um, cocktail parties. What did you, let's see, the, the play dates, the uh, happy hour and play dates, cocktail times, um, which seem to be increasing. So why don't you go ahead and, and uh, take us to the beginning of your story. Uh, okay, I can do that. Let's see. Um, well, I guess I, I, I do want to comment on the news. I, I don't think it's common for alcoholics to avoid the dentist and to, you know, to be pill-seeking. I think that's misinformation. And, uh, again, whether we can get to the bot, the real truth behind what happened in the Taconic crash, uh, I have no interest in what the real truth was. What the important piece of information is the piece that we all have, which is that, um, this woman was clearly had a problem with alcohol and it was a tragedy and having someone quote pay a price further than than has already been paid uh doesn't seem like it, it's going to help at all so i you know well I'm not in the a, sense I'm not that justice... in the sense that this would perhaps this would um help other families i mean don't you think i mean isn't that part of what you're doing with trying families? to make I mean, it if you want to be really helpful here the really helpful thing is to call, you know, is to make sure and, and track your own drinking and make sure you're not a problem drinker. And if you have a question, get help. That's the helpful information to come out of this story, not should the father be held accountable for his wife and who's responsible. I mean, that has no bearing on well, okay. the real helpful information available well, here. Well, I, I have to just disagree with you because wouldn't you also say and and um I have not yet read your book I would I am looking forward to reading your book um but I I from what I've read about it I would imagine that part of what you're trying to accomplish is to get families to be more aware and the public in general to be more aware of when there is someone in the family who is suffering from alcoholism so that they can be helpful to that person no, what I'm really trying to do is tell my story so that people themselves who have a problem are willing to to get help, and that that's a crucial difference. And it may seem in, you know sort of insignificant, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, no one on the outside, family member or not, ha- is is capable of diagnosing whether another person has an alcohol problem. It has to be an individual diagnosis and if there however the big caveat there is if there are dependents and you do have a spouse you suspect has a problem with alcohol and that person is you know in primary charge of the children you do have some responsibility to pay attention to what's going on but I'll tell you denial seems to be how it goes because if you've got for example uh, let's just be crazy with gender here and say we have a stay-at-home father. He, his wife is a lawyer, and she goes to work, let's say. She gets home at 7 every night, and she is so glad to have a partner home with her children taking care of them and that her kids don't have to be in daycare. So she notices when she gets home he's had a couple drinks. 
Now, what's her choice? Is she going to choose to, like over time he's drinking more, is she going to start quizzing him on whether he's drinking and driving with her kids? Well, one would certainly hope she would. But if she doesn't, that's where the whole, and I think this is where you and I agree, that the problem, you know, the denial is such a terrible problem because you really, the the spouse of the person or the partner of the person who is drinking and, you know, doing things in secret or what have you is so invested in making sure or wanting everything to seem okay. And I'll tell you, that was a huge part of what happened in my family, that my husband, and I, I would let him speak for himself if he were around, but... He's not, um, you know, I don't think he wanted to believe I had a problem with alcohol, so he specifically did not ever ask me about how much I drank. And, you know, he would make sort of little asides when the pile of bottles in the recycling would, you know, get a little high. He would say, geez, how's it going over there? You seem to be drinking. You know, but it was never, hey, I'm worried that you're drinking. That's not his style. I think there's a lot of people in the world that are non-confrontational, and they just, they so want to have a happy, healthy family that they will almost project that image onto something that is clearly neither happy nor healthy. So, I mean, that's really one of the key issues here is it's so tough when you're inside of it. Okay, well, tell us about how you got started because you relate it somewhat to the stress of motherhood, right? Sure. Sure. I mean, I think uh, what... what um, talked about a little bit in in the book was was that you know for me I, I my belief is that people are alcoholics I mean you, you sort of have this this uh, this proclivity toward alcoholism and addiction and I come by my alcoholism very honestly I have generations of people on both sides of my family or my mom's side sorry that have that were alcoholics so there's that, sort of that potential. I was a reasonably normal drinker until I was about 33. Normal meaning I could sort of take it or leave it. I would have drinks on, you know, on the weekends or at special occasions, but I wasn't a daily drinker. And, I, you know, I just, it's my life didn't revolve around it. And I think what happened for me with the onset of motherhood is that I was more isolated and that, you know, for me, especially with twins, um, and, and I was single, a single parent for a while, um, the conditions around my motherhood in particular were were exceedingly challenging, you know, being a single mar- parent of multiples. And, you know, I was just totally homebound. And so to some extent to try and capture any adult time was nearly impossible. And, and uh, so I really started drinking a lot more heavily after the twins were born. So for me, you know, I would agree with what you were saying there, uh, Certainly the stress of motherhood really brought out what was probably a potential or a latent stage of alcoholism anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and how did it um, happen that you were a single parent? How did it happen? Yes. Well, um, I mean, did, that, did, did your alcoholism, I, I, were you, you were separated, I guess, right? Well, I um, I didn't marry the twins' father. He and I had only been together a few months when we got pregnant. So our our chances, our outlook there for success as a couple wasn't that great. We stayed together for about um, nine, gosh, I think it was about nine months after the twins were born. And we just, our relationship just fell apart. I mean, we were so unprepared. We'd only, you know, we hadn't known each other very long by the time the twins came around. And, uh, you know, um, so... We just our relationship fell apart. It wasn't it wasn't about the drinking. It was just you know new twins and layoffs and life happening uh-huh. and 
for me, probably postpartum depression played in there. So that's kind of how that relationship fell apart. And so, um, but and so, so that was so you were married to someone else beforehand, who was the father of your older child. I have uh, no. My oldest children are the twins, and they're seven oh. and a half. And then my youngest girl is four, and uh, she is the daughter of my current husband. I see. Okay. And so, um, so when you, but the alcohol didn't have anything. So. so did you start drinking more after then that you were separated from the father of the twins? Yeah, I was. I did. I did. Um, I do attribute some of that increased drinking to the um, increased isolation of being a mm-hmm. single parent. For mm-hmm. Sure. And what is? I was very interested in what you were saying that there's this new trend of um, of women getting together with combining cocktail playdates. Well, it's not a new trend. It's been around for a few years, but I think um, that the, there's quite a – there was just a lot written up. I think the big – I think one of the culminating media reports of it was in the New York Times style section. There was the uh, big report about, you know, Mommy and Me cocktail playdates, and then Babbel.com, which is the magazine, parenting magazine I wrote for, kind of started – launched in 06, and just there are – a plethora of of blogs and magazines and um, people writing about stress relief and the need for adult time. And I think that that cocktail playdates became shorthand for, oh, my God, I need a drink or, oh, I just need a break. You know, that that being a parent in in the current structure of things is incredibly stressful and high pressure. And whether people were actually really always having cocktail playdates is unclear to me. Um, I think it was sort of a, a, a code for people uh-huh. to say, hey, let's have some adult time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So could you sort of take us on um, uh, kind of the journey that you talk about in your book? Sure. Um, journey. Let's see. So after the twins were born and um, after I was a single parent for a while, I uh, my drinking got, you know, I, what happened really was I became a daily drinker. Um, after the twins were about nine months old, and I was living by myself in this little house in north of Seattle by a couple of hours, and I had my family really close by, but I basically moved away from my f- women friends and my a lot of my support system, which remained in Seattle. So I think my isolation and the stress of single parenting and all that, um, I just started drinking every day. It, it was became it started really as a ritual, a way to relax and unwind, and. Um, you know, not an unreasonable thing to do, but over over the ensuing years, um, really, probably the last three years of my drinking, I was drinking a lot every day, and I was starting earlier in the day. And so the journey really was, you know, I, I uh, got married again for the second time in 2003, and uh, my husband, my second husband, uh, you know, was really excited about being a step parent to the twins, who at that at that time were about 16 months old. And, you know, for a while, uh, things were really good, and he and I got pregnant and had our own daughter a few years later, and, um, excuse me, and then we, you know, and then we, we continued our life together, but I think one of the things that made it worse was that we, you know, blended families, which are never, ever easy, uh, in our case, were, was, we just had real different parenting styles, and I felt like he was too hard on the kids, and he felt like I was too lenient, and, 
you know, throw in a bunch of booze and <laughs> some postpartum uh-huh. hormones, and it was a pretty much a recipe for disaster. So, okay, when we we need to take a break now, but when we come back, we'll um, hear more about the recipe for disaster and also how my guest uh, Rachel Brownell uh, managed to survive that, which is. An inspiration for lots of people who are suffering quietly through this same problem. Again, my guest is Rachel Brownell. She's the author of the new book called Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore, Getting Through the First Year of Sobriety. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Rachel Brownell. She's the author of the new book called Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore, Getting Through the First Year of Sobriety. And um, this is obviously a topic that um, needs to be brought to light. It's sort of a, a secret that um, that is kept something that's kept secret too much too often, as the story of the uh, the tragic story of the accident on the Taconic has illustrated. But there are lots of uh, things that don't make as much news every day. There are mommies and daddies driving drunk and uh, killing or injuring innocent people. Um, before we, before the break, um, we were starting to hear Rachel's story. She has bravely um, told her her own story in her book, so that she could uh, help other people to understand some of the signs um, of alcoholism and and some of the, you know, what actually happens. Sort of taking the lid off these secrets. So, Rachel, why don't you continue? So my my story is not, I think, one of the reasons I felt confident telling my story, although it was very, you know, conf, you know I think any time you're wanting to write write about very personal experiences, like a lot of us that have blogged over the years, you know, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. But the one thing that made me confident that I should go ahead with it was the feeling that I wasn't going to be alone, that somehow there were other mothers that were probably going through what I was going through. And so um, at the time that my second marriage, you know, started having challenges, which was really soon after my, I don't know, probably within about three months after my third daughter was born in 2005, um, my drinking, I think, picked up quite a bit. And um, I had, a lo- at the time, a job where I was executive director of a, uh, of a nonprofit here where I live in Bellingham, Washington, and... I think the combination of the stress there and just, you know, having three kids under five, it, it really proved way too much. And I think that, you know, in as much as we can um, ascribe externalities to someone with an addiction, mm-hmm. I think a lot of women today face the sort of dual pressure of needing, you know, it's like we need to have successful careers, we need to have children that are fluent in two languages, mm-hmm. and quality time with our spouse who is incidentally also our soulmate. You know, just it's ridiculous the kind of expectations we have. And I think, you know, Judith Warner touched on it in her book, Perfect Madness. I think Gen X moms in particular, those of us in our 30s and 40s, are um, it's a real setup because we were raised that um, we could be firefighters and, you know, basketball players, and my mom took great pride in not teaching me how to cook or clean or do anything like that. And so I think it was a setup because we, I really was raised to believe I could do anything I wanted. And, and since I didn't have kids till I was 33, I was really shocked to find that, in fact, having children is a, um, you know, an incredible blessing, but also a real challenge to a person's identity. And um, I never really dreamed of being a mommy when I was a little girl. I more dreamed of being a writer or, you know, a successful career person. So 
in any event, those challenges of identity and the stresses of, I think, modern motherhood really took their toll on me. And I was already a potential alcoholic, and I think it just sort of set it off like uh-huh. a kindling there. So um, as we went, you know, as our marriage kind of devolved quickly, I think my, my drinking picked up and... My husband's determination to probably ignore it also increased, mm. and we, you know, we just became increasingly distant until, you know, really we were, um, for the last few years of our marriage, we really just managed our household and managed the kids together as best we could, but did not have any real connection and didn't really have a way to communicate with each other. So when I started to get sober, um in the fall of 07, um, one of the things that happened for me is I uh, I had started to talk to my doctor about my drinking um, in 2005. I would go to the doctor for a checkup, and I would say, hey, am I drinking too much? But then I would lie about how much mm-hmm. I drank when they asked, and so, of course, they would say, oh, no, that's fine. You can uh-huh. have a glass of wine every other night, even though I was drinking much more than that. And But I had started to suspect that I was not drinking like other people, that my um, I had to make sure there was alcohol at any event, even if it was just a neighborhood party, if it was in the afternoon. My highlight of the whole thing would always be, you know, whether they were going to have booze there or not. It was my reward for my hard work as a working mom. And as, uh, you know, as time went on, I started having more and more hangovers in the morning and, and started to feel a lot more self-loathing and just really like, what what is my problem? Why can't I seem to be able to do life as a person in my, you know, mid-30s? Like, it seems like everyone else can do these things, and I just seem to be not able to do it, uh-huh. you know, without a whole heck of a lot of booze and everything else. So in the fall of 07, when my twin daughters were starting kindergarten, I... Uh, I had been looking forward to it for a long time, and I, what ended up happening is my drinking really got a lot worse that summer prior to them starting school, and I really started worrying because I had started to drink earlier in the afternoon and just was out of it. And I would, you know, I'd usually pass out around 8 at night, and I just felt like I was starting to miss things. And that first week before they were to start kindergarten, excuse me, kindergarten, I missed a couple of really key parent orientation events because I was so hungover. And and really that was the beginning of the end for me because I couldn't lie to myself anymore that it wasn't impacting my children. Like mm. I simple things like I didn't get to pick up the calendar which said, you know, which books I was supposed to buy or which supplies and I was always late. You know, I was always getting them to school late and just I just was not able to be organized and with it I was so sick and so um, really depressed about everything. And so once I realized that it was it was there's just no more lying about the fact that it was totally impacting my children negatively, I decided to get help at that at that juncture. Well, was there some? I mean, was that the event? So it was it was this missing these um, school important school meetings. I mean, was that the final event that made you look into getting help? Yeah, it's. I mean, it sounds somewhat anticlimactic. If you <laughs> knew me, you'd know that I'm a I'm a, a real keener for school. Uh-huh. And um, the very first parent orientation, I had been up the night before. You know, I ironed their little uniforms. I got everything all set, and I decided I would have a glass of wine. And the next thing I knew, it was morning, and I had had tons to drink, and I just had this terrible hangover. So I went to the twin school. 
and I was, you know, I was excited to go to this orientation where we were supposed to get all this key information of, like, how to help your kindergartner adjust, and all this sort of pretty important stuff was going to be passed along to us, and I ended up um, attempting to sit in the orientation, and I got so sick I had to run out of the room, and I just spent Mm. the entire time sitting in the bathroom um, being sick. And Mm. so I had sort of the shame of, oh, I just missed all this information. And then, oh, my God, what if another mom walks in and sees me here throwing up? I mean, it's clear that this isn't just stomach flu, right? Mm. So I just was... It just was terrible. I felt like just the world's worst mother. And so, yeah, that was really the deal breaker for me for whatever reason. And, you know, a lot of people have to get a lot worse than that before they get help. And I am incredibly grateful that that's that's about as bad as it had to get for me um, in order for me to decide, okay, this is it. I'm This sucks. I'm really doing a poor job of being a mom. And I motherhood, in spite of my mixed feelings about it in terms of identity or whatever, when it comes to my kids, I'd always wanted to be – a good mom, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic mom, and it was that was exactly what I was. I was a drunk, you know, and it was just terrible to feel that way. Yes, I well, I can see that event, you know, being bringing, being a climax, you know. And, and, but what's interesting, so your husband up until that point hadn't really sort of done anything to bring it to your attention that this was that this had reached drastic proportions. No, he didn't even he didn't at all. Not at all. And that's, but you have to, I mean, again, as a caveat, you know, you know, he is not a confrontational person. I am the queen of confrontation. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? You know, I just, that is, and that is one of the primary failings of our marriage in the end, and we are getting divorced, is that we have just dramatically different approaches to it. He never, ever said anything to me about my drinking, and once I started to go to my recovery program and to do the 12-step group, I mean, he was supportive for sure. I mean, he had to be. He had to sort of babysit for me and, you know, cover for me so I could go to all these meetings all the time. It, still then, there wasn't sort of recrimination or there wasn't like this sort of sit, let's sit down and talk about this and tell me what it's like. Mm. There, there was nothing like that. I mm. think he was, you know, again, I can't really speak for him. I can only tell you from where I sit, it was, you know, that he wished... You know, he wished I wasn't an alcoholic and that um, maybe he thought, maybe in the beginning he thought I was overreacting a little bit to go to 12 Steps and to mm. give, up the, give up the booze. And, you know, he did make a couple comments that it, it was sad to lose that ability to, like, go out to dinner with your wife and have a glass of wine. And, and mm. you know, wow. I am sympathetic to that. I really am. But it wasn't, we did not grow closer as a result, you know, like you would think that you could go one of two ways there. Yes. Well, we, we'll come back to find out more about which way you went when we, after we take this break. Um, again, my, my guest is Rachel Brownell. Her book is Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore, and uh, the subtitle is Getting Through the First Year of Sobriety, and we'll hear more about that that first year when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times do you want help then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you um, and with my guest, talking with you. We're all talking together. Rachel Brownell, she's the author of Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore, Getting Through the First Year of Sobriety. And when we uh, took the break, she was just beginning to tell us about how um, she had begun her sobriety and how, you know, that is a sort of a critical time for marriages. And she was saying that there were two ways that you can go when um, you become sober. And why don't you go in and go on and tell us that, about that? Well, I think by the time a lot of us get sober, you know, we've done a lot of damage to our marriages, and I know I had, and just in terms of secrecy and and uh, being absent, really. I mean, my body was there, but my spirit was elsewhere, you know, and I think uh, what I've observed is that in the first year of sobriety in particular, people can, especially if you're married to a normal drinker and you decide that you're an alcoholic and you go into recovery, all of a sudden you have all this language and you have a different experience of life. And, well, first of all, the first few months, you're, I, I was certainly in physical and emotional withdrawal. I mean, I didn't really quite know what to do with myself in the afternoons at all. And so, and you, um, you um, started sobriety by going to AA meetings? 
Yeah, I'm not. I um, I went to a 12-step group. That's mm-hmm. all I'm comfortable saying. Okay. So um, I mean, you didn't go into a hospital detox or anything. No, I didn't. Uh-huh. I didn't at all. I just did like a lot of people do. I looked in my yellow pages under alcohol abuse, and I made a call, and they told me where to go, and I went. So, uh-huh. but it was all outpatient. It was all um, meetings and stuff. Okay. So I started to have um, 12-step language, and, you know, I just would go to all these meetings, and I was meeting new people, and I think for a lot of spouses, um, that is an alienating experience because all of a sudden this person who maybe they were a party girl and you still thought they were fun and cute or whatever becomes the serious crying lady, you know, and that was certainly what happened to us. And I am positive my husband had no clue what to do with me and I didn't know what to do with him and we did not have the tools to overcome, you know, all the damage that had been done and all the ways in which we had grown so tremendously apart. And my, um, I, you know, from the, I had the benefit of a, an excellent friend who had more sobriety than I did, and she really encouraged me not to make any major life decisions in my first year of sobriety. So I was determined to stay married that first year. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it wasn't easy, and it was there were some real rocky times, and in a lot of ways, uh, sobriety made our marriage worse than um, all those times when I was drinking because now everything was out in the open, and there wasn't any you know, brushing it under the rug. So um, anyway, we we tried to make our marriage work, and in the end, um, just like a, about seven or eight months ago, nine months ago now, we've uh, decided to get divorced, and so we're in the process of getting divorced. And in October, I'll have two years of sobriety. So, oh, well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like um, in our case, we just weren't able to ever get over all those changes and all the differences, but a lot of people are, and the good news here is that a lot of times couples who, where one has been an addict, alcoholic, you know, when they go into recovery, they get honest, they, they be, become a person of integrity, they start being, frankly, a lot less self-centered, and it can be a real opportunity to grow closer with your partner, and I've seen a lot of marriages um, really blossom after that first while when you're struggling to find common language. And I really think that's fantastic when that happens. Anyway, you know, so... I mean, yes, it's because the husband or the the spouse, that could be the wife, you know, the spouse or the partner... um, feels threatened by, as you were saying, the new language, the new friends, uh, the new support, the being away for the meetings and so on. And usually these people are enablers, and um, your getting stronger is threatening to them. And so it takes a spouse who um, can find that strength in themselves to where they don't really need to have a weaker spouse, you know, in order to feel... Um, Less threatened, or if, I mean, the fear is, well, now that my spouse is sober, she's going to wake up and realize that she should, could have somebody better than I am. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, again, I think the main point here is that, you know, if you have a problem with alcohol and you decide to get sober, you know, really the most the most important thing to focus on that first while is just not taking a drink a day at a time. If you get too, like I used to get real in, in raps about should I change jobs, should I move cities, you know, should I take up flamenco dancing? <laughs> and then I would have my friends say, hey, 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 relax and keep it simple. Right. Just don't drink today. Right. And if you can, 
try not to drink tomorrow too, but let's just focus on today. So the same thing applies to significant relationships and a lot of, you know, ostensibly the same thing would apply to your relationships with your kids. I had real young kids, so I feel lucky to the extent that they're resilient and frankly young enough that they don't even hardly remember me drinking anymore. Um, you know, you have, you have a lot of healing work to do with your family um, Mm -hmm. once you get sober, but really you can't bite it all off at the beginning. You have to really just take it incredibly slowly, and I was very lucky to have have the benefit of having access to people with a lot more sobriety who were so unconcerned about all my drama. They helped me really calm down, and now um, hopefully I'm able to do that for other new people as well. Yes, yes, and that is the... uh the takeaway message. Um, where can people buy your book and tell us about your website? So my author website is rachelbrownell.com. And, um, and spell I, that. Absolutely. R-A-C-H-A-E-L-B-R-O-W-N-E-L-L.com. And the name of my book is Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore. You can search for it on Amazon or even better, you can go and support your local bookstore. If your bookstore doesn't have it, of course, we'd be happy to ship it to you. <laughs> and um, and I'll be um, doing readings throughout Washington State and California. So oh, well, hopefully good. I'll get a chance to meet some people live. Yes, okay. That's, and you put the dates of your readings um, and signings on up, on the, Under, up on your website, that's which, right. which, again, is... Uh, rachelbrownell.com it's you have to pay attention to the spelling of rachel it's r a c h a e l brownell b r o w n e l l.com i i probably is also easy to look it up with by mommy doesn't drink here anymore right <laughs> well i um i wish you lots of success with this it is a very you know, if I mean the fact that you come out and go into the details and and so on and and reveal um, your personal story, that is more helpful than textbooks. You know, talking sure. about these things uh, sort of in general terms. But um, I think that uh, that obviously, I mean, the statistics are really getting to be alarming. Um, in 2007, the DUI arrests involving women were 28.8% higher than it was uh, in 1998, so like almost 10 years before, while the number of DUI arrests involving men fell by 7.5%. Men still drink more than women, but women are catching up with them. And yes, one of the reasons, um, I mean, actually the reasons that you talked about at the beginning, uh, this trying to, to have a perfect life, trying to get it all in the pressure of work and home and and holding life together is certainly a big part of it. So thank you very much, Rachel Brownell. Again, it's the book is called Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 